Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please join me in welcoming for the first time to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Tim Staples. Thank you so much. It, it's a blessing to be here. It really is. Uh, I've heard so much good about this holy deacon over there. Uh, from some of my guys at Catholic Answers. Uh, this is a great work, and you all are very blessed to be able to be a part of it. The good deacon wanted me to, to speak, uh, basically answer the question, are you born again? But actually, I'm going to answer three questions in the first 45 minutes, and then we'll take that little break, and, and I'll come back and share my conversion. So let's begin with prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of faith, and we acknowledge it is just that, a gift. We've done absolutely nothing to merit the gift of faith that we've received, and yet we know that we're called to nurture and nourish this great gift of faith, and not only for our own salvation, but so that we might be instruments to bring this great gift of faith and salvation to others as well. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would open our hearts, open our minds, that we might be receptive to the Word of God that is able to make us wise unto salvation. And we ask this again in the name above every name, the name of Jesus Christ, as we now turn to our Blessed Mother. And we do so with confidence, knowing she always leads us to Jesus. Hail Mary full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Well, um, the, these two talks that I'm going to share are, are very much intertwined, because both of them really come uh, out of my own experience being a convert, and as uh, the good deacon said when he was reading the bio at the end there, when my bio says, I studied my way into the last place I ever thought I would end up, that, that is an understatement. Because if, if you would have told me about 30 years ago that one day I would be traveling the world defending the Catholic faith, I would have probably tried to cast a demon out of you. And I'm not joking. <laughs> you know, as an Assembly of God boy, I, I, and I can tell you, you know, and being raised a Southern Baptist, I was in a Southern Baptist community that was not all that Catholic friendly, let's just say. I mean, to me, I mean, Catholicism was insane. I'll talk more about that in my second uh, talk. But I, I'm going to start here with three questions that I used to put to, to Catholics because, you know, I, we, even Protestants who don't realize it, some of the lower Protestant sects like, you know, the Assemblies of God where I was a youth pastor or 
the Southern Baptists and, and such, are very much influenced by Luther. And Luther, as many of you know, in his commentary on Romans, famously, um, and in his, his translation in his German Bible of Romans 3.28, where he adds the word alone where it's not there, we, see, we account a man to be justified by faith apart from the works of law. Luther added, of course, famously, the word alone there and three other places. But in, in Luther's commentary, he said concerning works. He said, when St. Paul condemns works, he condemns all works whatsoever in any sense as being involved in our justification, in any sense. And that's a, it's a devastating error, a grave error that leads to all sorts of things. But one thing, I'll just toss this out quickly. Luther's greatest work, um, scholars say, is his book, Bondage of the Will. I remember I first read that. I've read it a couple of times, but I first read it when I was still Protestant. I found that when I encountered Catholicism in my friend, Sergeant Matt Dula, who you'll learn about in the second talk, the, you know, Mother Teresa was so profoundly right when she said, when the people encounter Jesus in her sisters as they are traveling the world, picking up the dying and the dead, um, and doing what they do so amazingly, they don't evangelize with words, they evangelize with their very being. And Mother Teresa said, when people first encounter Jesus in these angels, her sisters, the first response is normally they become a better Hindu or a better Buddhist or a better Muslim or a better whatever they are. You know, Mother took a lot of heat over that statement, right? Oh, that's indifferentism. No, it's not indifferentism. That's reality. The fact is when you encounter Jesus in a life lived for Jesus, and this is what you guys are about here in, in your focus on Catholic culture. This is what we're called to do as Catholics, not just to know syllogisms and apologetic arguments, but to be Christ for people. When they encountered Christ and those sisters, their first movement was, wow, I need to be a better whatever I am. That's exactly what happened to me when I encountered Christ in Sergeant Matt Dula. When I heard apologetics arguments from this man, and I saw in his life a life that was sold out for Jesus Christ. My first movement was to Martin Luther, to John Calvin, to John Wesley, to discover why am I what I am. And I began to read these guys. Well, Luther's Bondage of the Will, as many of you know, the entire thesis of Bondage of the Will is that free will is a farce. As some of you know, it's a dialogue between Luther and Erasmus, who was a Catholic theologian. In fact, Luther wanted Erasmus to go with him, but he didn't. Erasmus was, was arguing the Catholic position. Not always the best apologist, uh, but he did the best he could. In that book, though, the thesis was that that free will is a farce. I was recently at lunch with a Lutheran pastor, and when I shared this with him, uh, you should have seen the look on his face. He said, Luther didn't deny free will. I said, sir, you're a Lutheran pastor. 
you should know what Luther taught. And he really did not know that Luther denied free will. He said it was a farce. In fact, in two different places in Barnes of the Will, Luther uses two different metaphors for the people of God. He says we are like horses or donkeys. And Luther said, as a donkey, if the devil gets on your back and rides you, he will ride you to hell. If God gets on your back and rides you, he will ride you to heaven. But the donkey has no choice as to who rides him. See, and that is, I, you know, you can't put into words how devastating that is to religion, to our faith, to the revealed religion that we have in sacred scripture. In fact, this would lead to, and it's very interesting, folks, about Luther. If you read him at any length, Luther early on, it's obvious, did not realize what his own theology was going to lead to. Because when he first starts saying things like this, you know, he, in fact, here, here's a good example of this. In 1522, he wrote his famous prayer book. And in that prayer book, he still was teaching, though he would later reject that, the Immaculate Conception. He always upheld the perpetual virginity of Mary, and he still had a tremendous devotion to the Blessed Mother. He had devotion to the saints, but that would later on go out the window. Why? Well, folks, if you can't do anything to affect your own salvation, then what in the world does Mary have to do with your salvation or anybody else or anybody else's intercession? Folks, this is what leads to presently in evangelical and Pentecostal Christianity, the me and Jesus theology. See, all I need is Jesus. Folks, I live that and I breathe that. I would say that all the time. I don't need no church. I don't need some dude with a white beanie on his head. I was not really nice <laughs> the way I would present things. To tell me what I'm going to believe or what I'm going to do. All I need is Jesus. See, that has its root right there in Luther and his commentary on the Romans. In fact, Luther would later, as I'm doing a little extra here, wasn't planning on this, but Luther, as many of you know, early on, he used the term mass, the mass, and later he would, he would get rid of it, but because of his belief in the real presence, he never lost his belief in the real presence, but he denied the mass was a sacrifice. And the amazing thing is, when you read Luther early on, he used the term the Mass. Later, it would become just a service. But he could not get out of his ex-Catholic followers the idea of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. And that's why he ended up getting rid of the term Mass. Right? But early on, he tried to save it. We believe in the real presence, he said, but the mass as a sacrifice, he said, was the abomination of abominations. Why? Because if the mass is truly a sacrifice, then it's something we have to do. Amen? See, Luther says the communion service is something that God does. We do nothing except passively receive. Whereas the truth of the matter is, the mass is the holy sacrifice of the mass. It's something we do. It is entirely human as well as entirely divine. See, and really Luther at his core ends up destroying religion. Folks, what is religion? Religion is a virtue. Amen. It's simply the sum total of 
beliefs and ordinances, if you will, by which our lives are ordered toward God. Of course, it's something we must do. And whether or not we do it well will determine where we're going to spend eternity. See, Luther dispenses with that. And it's kind of nice, isn't it? I mean, it, it, isn't it kind of tempting to fall for that? See, in the Lutheran understanding, Jesus did it all. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Jesus did it all. I don't have to do anything. See, and, and, you know, Luther famously, you know, this would lead to his famous statement. I could commit murders and adulteries a hundred times in a day, and it would not affect my standing with God, for I am justified by faith alone. Devastating. Devastating. Now, of course, if you're really born again, you're going to want to serve God, and you should want to serve God. See, and, and I, I, I should emphasize that because our Protestant friends following Luther will say the same thing. Man, I love Jesus. I want to serve him because I love him. And that's a wonderful thing. Amen. I want to serve Jesus because I love him too. But the point is, what happens if I don't? What happens if I fall into adultery? Or if I lie or I steal? Or if I don't keep the Lord's day holy? Or if I on and on and on? What happens, my friend? And that's where the real problems arise, all right? That's kind of a little introduction, so let me ask the questions now. Because, see, in all three of these questions that you will commonly get, now I'm focusing on the evangelical Pentecostals, this is where I come from tonight, but you'll, you'll get three questions, and I'm sure 99% of you have already heard them from, from some of our evangelical and Pentecostal friends. One is, are you born again? Two is, are you saved? And I don't mean just saved, I mean saved! <laughs> and three, do you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven? Those are the three questions that you get so often. But you have to understand, all of this, all three of these questions are undergirded by that first principle that you need to be aware of and to be able to deal with. All right, let's start then with are you born again? Because as many of you know, you know there, there's arguments among Protestants, you know, whether you're a Calvinist or a Lutheran or, an, or more of a Pentecostal boy. There are arguments over this are you born again thing. As many of you know, in John chapter 3, verse 3, if you have your Bibles, yes, you can turn it. In John 3, verses 3 through 5, i got to tell you, this is so rare to have a Catholic group with Bibles. <laughs> you know the famous scenario there in John 3 where Jesus says, unless you are born, and actually, the Greek text doesn't say born again. It says born anew, or literally from above. The Greek word is anothen which means really born from above. Unless you are born from above, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And of course, Nicodemus gets it wrong, doesn't he? He thought Jesus meant you have to be born again. Actually, Jesus wasn't technically saying born again. He's saying born from above. But Nicodemus says, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he go back into his mama's womb and be born again? And Jesus repeats Verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, unless you are born of water and spirit, 
you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, right? Now, among evangelicals, if, if you're a Calvinist, gosh, um, I, I can remember years ago being in an argument when I was Protestant with, with a Calvinist. And as many of you know, John Calvin takes Luther to the next step. Um, there's, a, there's a joke among Calvinists, and I, I can remember arguing with this particular Calvinist, and we kind of laughed about this. For Calvinists, to be born again is something that is sovereignly done by God in your soul, in your heart of hearts, before you ever utter a word. There's no such thing for the Calvinist as you say the sinner's prayer and that's when you become a Christian. No. As the, my Calvinist friend said to me all those years ago, he said, Tim, a dog doesn't bark to become a dog. A dog barks because he is a dog. Are you all with me? Yes. See, for the evangelicals and especially Pentecostals, they say, no, when you say the sinner's prayer. As Romans 10.10 says, for with the heart man believes unto righteousness, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, they will say, see? And then in Romans 10.13, are you all following me here? There's going to be a quiz later. <laughs> Romans 10.13, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So they say, no, you have to confess Christ to be saved. The Calvinist says, no, you confess Christ because you're already saved by a sovereign act of God it has nothing to do with you whatsoever. Are y'all following me? All right. So the born again experience then, depending upon who you deal with, you got to deal with it in different ways, but I'm going to focus on the evangelical, the Billy Graham, the Charles Stanley version of being born again. They will say that in order to be born again, you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth. And so you are saved. Now, the problem with that position, and I will tell you, about 29 years ago, I discovered it from a young Marine named Sergeant Matt Dula, who encountered me. The, the, deacon, the, the good deacon spoke of, Sergeant Dula was the first Catholic I ever met who knew his Bible. And he said to me, well, Tim, being born again, technically speaking, <laughs> doesn't have anything to do with what John Calvin's saying or what Charles Stanley or Billy Graham's saying. Born again is in baptism, right? Now, I knew Catholics said that, but I just thought it was crazy because, no, being baptized has not, this is very important, has not, and I said this to him, has nothing to do with your salvation, right? Boy, was I being set up. When I said that, it has nothing to do with Baptism is simply, we taught, right, an outward sort of confession, profession to the world that you are born again. But it has nothing to do with your salvation. And in, in fact, I argue, now, as many of you know, among Calvinists, Protestants in general, there are two main interpretations of John 3, 3 through 5. What is the born again and what is the water and spirit? Well, I held that the water that Jesus speaks of is amniotic fluid. You ever heard that one? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Amni and isn't it obvious? <laughs> uh, no, it's not. But, you know, when you're raised that way, unless you're born of water and spirit, that's what I, I was taught from the time I was a kid. So he's saying that a natural birth, born of water, amniotic fluid, 
and then born of spirit, which is, you know, the new birth. You cannot see the kingdom of, of, of heaven. Now, there's another interpretation of that among evangelicals that says that, no, the water refers to the word of God. And the water in some places in sacred scripture is referred to as the word of God. The word of God is water, it's seed. There are different metaphors used for the word of God. Now, I held to the amniotic fluid. The bottom line is neither one of those work contextually. The bottom line is, folks, born of water and spirit is obviously baptism when you see the context. And I had never seen the context before. The most amazing thing to me, Dr. Scott Hahn, my good friend, often says this as well, he never really became a Bible Christian until he became Catholic. We called ourselves Bible Christians, but the Bible came alive to me after I became Catholic or in the process of seeing the wealth, the biblical tradition that we have as Catholics is so rich. What my, my buddy, Matt Dula, pointed out to me is he said, well, first of all, Tim, he says, unless you are born of water and spirit, he did not say born of water and then born of spirit. It's one Reality, unless you are born of water and spirit. Amen? Amen? That's number one. Number two, amniotic fluid? <laughs> and Matt looked at me and he said, Tim, are you serious? <laughs> see, because look, you don't even have to go beyond John's gospel to see that born of water is nowhere, in fact, it's nowhere used in scripture. Born of water is not a phrase that was used in the first century for birth. You were born of flesh or born of blood. In fact, right there in the same text, he says in the, in the next verse, for that which is born of flesh is flesh. Born of water doesn't refer to a physical birth. Are you with me? Flesh does. Or go back to John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where John says that um, it is not he that is born of the will of man or born of blood, but he that is born of God that becomes a child of God. See, born of blood refers to physical childbirth. That's John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. So born of blood or born of flesh refers to childbirth, not water. That's just unbiblical. Are you all following me? And to say this is the water of the word, all right, here, I'm going to share with you something that revolutionized my thinking all those years ago. He said, look, let's look at the context, all right? Get ready with your Bibles. Go to John chapter 1, verses 31 through 34. And here we have Jesus being baptized. Now, if you want a fuller view of that, go to Matthew 3.16. You might want to write that down and look at it later because we're going kind of fast. Right? But in John chapter 1, verses 31 through 34, John recounts Jesus' baptism of John. Hey, we just had something about that in the liturgy today, didn't we? Yeah. <laughs> right? And what happened, you had the heavens open, the dove, we have water, and behold, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, right? Do you think baptism might have something to do with John chapter 1, verses 31 through 34. I'm establishing a context here. John 1, 31 through 34, John has just talked about Jesus' baptism. Now go to John chapter 2, verse 6, because really all the way down to the end of John chapter 1 is Jesus' discourse 
after the baptism by John. Are you with me? That's what that whole discourse is about. Bapti or, or actually, it's John's discourse on baptism. Now we go to John chapter 2, and notice it says immediately thereafter. Now, why does it say that immediately? John says that not because it's actually immediately. He's connecting the two chapters. Are you with me? Even though originally in the Greek you know that they were not chapters. This is actually a time where it's a good place for a chapter break. But we have to remember they're connected. John 2 is connected back to John 1. And what does Jesus do in John 2? He goes to the wedding feast of Cana. And what does he do at the wedding feast of Cana? Through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary, he performs his first miracle. Amen? Amen. Whereby he begins, you know, in my book, Behold Your Mother, which all, did they tell you everybody has to buy that tonight? <laughs> oh, they didn't tell you that. Okay. Uh, in my book, Behold Your Mother, that happens to be back there on the table. Um, I... I talk about this, that basically here, now, I'm going to put it in terms I didn't in the book for you guys tonight because we're friends. Basically, what the Blessed Mother did in John chapter 2 is he went to Jesus and he said, and she said, Jesus, you're 30 years old living at home. It's time to get out of the house. <laughs> now, I say that kind of jokingly, but there is a profound truth here. Mary kickstarts Jesus into his ministry. And I always like to point out, I believe there is a connection back to that finding in the temple there in Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52. 18 years earlier, remember, Jesus went to the temple, got separated for three days. Mama comes, says, what are you doing, boy? Now that's my translation. <laughs> And she tells him, get your tail home right now. And he obeys. In verse 52, it says, and thus he grew in age and wisdom and grace before God and men. Grace, not so much for himself, but for you and I. Because grace floods down through the eons of time. Jesus was saving us through his entire life. But the point is, Mary basically goes to him as a child of 12 and says, you're not ready yet. Get your tail home. Now, Mary didn't have full understanding of what was going on there. God used her to rein Jesus in. She didn't have full understanding, but she pondered these things in her heart. She had a unique understanding. Amen. Even more so than Joseph did Mary have this understanding. Get your tail home. 18 years later, what does she do? Now's the time. Because when he was 12, he was beginning to manifest his glory. He was confounding the greatest minds of the day, and not just with his questions, but with his answers, Luke tells us. Amen? Mama says, uh-uh, not yet. Get your tail home. 18 years, he lives that life. Basically, you know what Jesus gave us there? Ordinary time. Amen? And that's what most of the liturgical calendar is. And guess what? That's what most of our lives consists of. Most of your life, you're not standing up in front of people running your mouth. Amen? Amen. Your Christianity is determined when you're in the hotel room all by yourself. Amen? Amen? See, ordinary time becomes extraordinary when you're in Jesus. Right? So at any rate, 18 years later, it's Mary that goes and says, now's the time. And what does Jesus say? Oh, mom. <laughs> right? 
It's not time. Isn't that something? In John 2, verse 4. What to me and to you, woman, my hour is not yet come. And what does Mary say? Yes, it has. <laughs> you want to know why? Because I'm the mommy. That's why. That's what my mom used to say when we were kids. Because I'm the mommy. That's why. But it was through her intercession, right, that Jesus then performs the first miracle. And, and verse 11 there in John 2 says, there he began to manifest his glory, and the apostles believed in him. Amen? Through the end, she becomes queen mother of the apostles, bringing them to faith. Amen? This is John chapter 2. But here's something that folks will overlook. When mama kickstarts Jesus, what does Jesus do? He performs his first miracle was the transformation of the water into wine. And what water? Look at verse 6. John 2, verse 6. There were six water jugs of about, what does it say, 20 or 30 gallons each, after the purifying rites of the Jews. These, my friends, if you go to Mark chapter 7, verse 2, these waters are called baptismus or baptismoi. These were the baptismal waters, the purification waters of the Jews that Jesus transforms. From water into wine, what is wine a symbol of in the new covenant? The new covenant itself. This is the new covenant in my blood. What was Jesus holding before the consecration? Wine. In Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, which is quoted in Acts chapter 2, Right when Peter preaches his famous sermon on Pentecost, I will pour out my spirit. Back up a few verses and you will find wine. I will fill your vats with wine. Wine is a symbol of the coming of the new covenant. Now think of this. He transforms water into wine. Six jugs. Six. Is that a significant number? Six days of creation. It's a number of incompletion. In fact, in Revelation 13, 666 is the number of a man because that's six multiplied by three, which is a number of perfection. That's kind of perfect imperfection. Are you with me? See? So you have six, the symbol of in, in, you know, the incomplete, water being transformed into wine, which is the transformation of the baptismal waters of the Old Testament. So can anybody see that there's kind of a baptism thing going on here? <laughs> see, in John 1, 31 through 34, Jesus is baptized. In John 2, Jesus transforms the baptismal waters. Then you go to John 3, verse 22. Now, now it gets exciting. I'll bet you one or two of you have not seen this verse because this is the only verse in the entire Bible that says Jesus baptized. All right? What does it say there, sir? Read it real loud for us. After these things, John 3.22. Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and he stayed there with them and baptized. Ho, ho! He stayed there with them and baptized. That's the only place in the Bible where Jesus baptizes. And it just happens to be right after he gives us the born-again discourse. Amen? Coincidence? I think not. Now go down to John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And there it says, Jesus continued baptizing, yet not Jesus, but his disciples. And it's interesting, there's some disagreement among Catholic scholars on this one. 
Does it mean Jesus never baptized and only the apostles baptized? I argue no. Jesus baptized in John 3.22. Then he sends the apostles out to baptize in John 4. He doesn't baptize anymore. Who did he baptize? The apostles. He did, though, look at verse 2. It says, though he himself did not baptize except the apostles. Are y'all with me? Oh, my goodness. Y'all, somebody should be shouting hallelujah right here. If, if y'all were Pentecostals, you'd be shouting hallelujah. So in other words, we got Jesus baptized. He transforms the baptismal waters. He then, the only place in the Bible, baptizes. Then he sends the apostles out to baptize. But John 3 has nothing to do with baptism. Are y'all with me? See, this was the kind of thing that I learned 30 years ago that revolutionized my life. I saw Catholics just inundated with scripture, and it just made so much sense. And wow, then you go into the rest of the biblical text where you mean baptism has nothing to do with your salvation? Well, why is it that Peter tells us in, first, I, I'm sorry, I got to go fast because we're running out of time. In 1 Peter 3.21, St. Peter says, baptism does now save us. Why does Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and 4 tell us? We are buried together with him through baptism so that as Christ is raised in newness of life, we may walk in newness of life. Why did Ananias have to confuse St. Paul? Remember his conversion in Acts 22, 16, when Ananias comes to that uh, Paul who had been knocked to the ground and blinded for three days? What does he say to him? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Doesn't he realize that baptism has nothing to do with your salvation? See, and we could go on. Galatians 3.27, right? We are baptized into Jesus Christ and on and on. But see, the problem is, folks, we got to get back to that Lutheran concept. Luther himself struggled with this. Because some of his followers were saying, how can you say works have nothing to do with it? But Luther also kept his belief in baptismal regeneration, or at least he tried to. But he was stumbling all over himself. trying to, And his answer to some of his followers when they wanted to get rid of baptism, because that's a work. It's something we have to do. And Luther says, no, it's not a work. It's the work of God. It's the work of God. We simply passively receive. But that didn't go over well with his, his, his followers. See, But let, let, me, let me move forward. See, the problem is, let's get to the second question. And the second question is, are you saved, brother? Are you saved? This was, I'd say my second question and third question are so intimately joined. Maybe we can do both of them together. Let's do that, especially since I only have 15 minutes here. <laughs> and are you saved? And let's go to two, two biblical verses. One, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man boast, right? Not of works, I used to say to you poor, confused Catholics. <laughs> not of works. And then there's 1 John 5, 13. This was probably my favorite verse in the Bible. Outside of all have sinned for the Mary stuff. Romans 3, 23. That was my favorite to go after you guys with. All have sinned. You want an answer to that one? It's in my book right back here. <laughs> Behold your mother. But this, this was a close second. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. 
These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Oh, man. I used to hit Catholics with that and watch them squirm. I'd say, do you know you're saved? Do you know that if you died right now, you're going to split heaven wide open? Do you know? And the Catholic response <laughs> Especially when I show, read this verse. These things have I written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. Don't let these people in that dead, dried up religion tell you you can't know that you should. I hope so. Like St. Joan of Arc. Right? I hope so. No, you can know it, brother, according to the word of God. And I'm telling you, I had Catholics squirming in their seats. And unfortunately, I led some out of the Catholic Church. But I'm getting them all back in. I am. <laughs> so how do you respond to these two things? See, number one, we'll do this quickly here. Oh, I wish we had more time. But, but folks, this is just the hors d'oeuvre. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should both. We as Catholics say amen. This is why I opened with the prayer where I said, we thank you for the gift of faith. And we acknowledge it is just that a gift. We've done absolutely nothing to merit that gift of faith that we've received. And yet we know we're called to nurture and nourish this great gift of faith, not only for our own salvation, but so that we might be instruments to bring this great gift of faith and salvation to others as well. That's why I prayed that in the beginning. First of all, because I want the Lord to make that real to each one of us. Amen? And it must be real to each one of us. But I also knew that we were going to talk about this. All right? See, Ephesians chapter 2 is obviously talking about the initial grace of faith and salvation that we receive through baptism. Amen? You say, how do you know that? He doesn't mention baptism. I'll tell you how I know it. Go back to verse 1. If you go to Ephesians chapter 1, read, you know, if you want to understand verses 8 and 9, a good place to start is 1 through 7. <laughs> Amen? It's not a trick. It's true, right? If you read, what does Paul say all the way up to verse 8? In fact, telling are the first four verses. He says, you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, Right? He says, you who were, go down like verses 3 and 4, you who were by nature children of wrath. Now, does that sound like Christians? No. This is before Christ. Amen? By nature, that's talking about original sin, by nature children of wrath. And then verse 5, for by grace. Amen? And then verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Folks, we did absolutely nothing. to Folks, we baptized babies. We, as Catholics, prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is nothing you can do to merit the initial grace. I mean, think of baptizing a baby. What has a baby done to merit anything? Well, that priest, I mean, all the baby's doing is laying there pooping. <laughs> the priest, forgive me, I'm a father of six. So I got poop on the mind. But anyway, my youngest one's 15 months. So anyway, when the priest pours water over that child's head, though he's done absolutely nothing to merit anything, he is incorporated into Christ, receives sanctifying grace. Original sin is eliminated. He becomes a child of God, receives seven, the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit and the right to the other sacraments in accordance with 
his future calling, and all he's doing is going, <laughs> right? That's what we're talking about. And even for the adult convert who must cooperate with grace in order to go to the waters of baptism, he or she cannot merit either. Because until you enter into Christ, you cannot merit. Why? Because Christ is the first principle of merit. You cannot merit anything from God on your own. Why? Because it is Christ in you, as Paul talks about in Galatians 2.20. Right? I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. It is Christ in you. Colossians 1.27 says that is the hope of glory. See, this is just good Catholic theology here and very, very biblical. See. So Ephesians 2, sorry, Martin Luther, Paul's not eliminating works in any sense as being necessary for our justification. That's where Luther missed it. Paul is eliminated there, works before you enter into Christ. Now, also, we don't have time to do this because I'm running out of time. In fact, I think I am out of time. Uh, Romans 3.28, Paul is talking about doing works apart from Christ. He's dealing with Judaizers who were being tempted to go back to the law to try to be saved. Remember that? Go back to circumcision and the temple sacrifices and such. And Paul says if you do that in Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6, you forfeit Christ. Why? Because you're going outside of Christ trying to be justified. Can't do it. Amen? This is why if you commit a mortal sin, guess what? You can merit absolutely nothing. You are cut off from Christ. You must go to confession to be, as the Council of Trent said, justified again. Amen? To be re-established in Christ, and then you can begin to merit heaven once again. All right? Now, I'm going to give you guys a quick homework assignment. Are you ready? Your homework assignment, I've been doing this for the last 20 I can't believe it. 22 years. I've been trying. Holy Deacon, I've been trying to get Catholics to memorize these verses. So I'm going to challenge you guys with this. In order to understand salvation properly, understand that salvation in Scripture has a threefold aspect to it. We have been safe, saved. Amen. And I already gave you that verse. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. We have been saved. How? Through baptism, and we could say through faith and baptism. Mark 16, 16, he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. That faith can be your own, or that faith can be the faith of your parents, or the one who brings you to the waters of baptism. Are you with me? Faith is essential, my friends. But we have been saved. Verse number two, we are being saved, folks. Crucial! Are we still awake? Yes. Crucial! First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, St. Paul says the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's a present participle. Perishing. The RSV Catholic edition gets it right. It's a present participle. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Are you with me? That's an ongoing reality. We are in the process of being saved by cooperating with God's grace. And then finally, are you ready? I'm going to give you two for the final one. And you've got to memorize them all because I'm coming back. <laughs> Matthew 10, verse 22, Jesus says, You shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. Amen? 
Or even better, Romans 13, 11, St. Paul says, For now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Amen? Oh, that was devastating. <laughs> Tim, I thought you said you're saved. You're already saved. Well, yes, I am, brother. I'm saved. Glory to God on my way. That Well, Paul doesn't agree with you. At least there's a sense in which you're not because he says now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. Why, do, why would he say these things and why would Jesus say it? Because salvation is a past reality through baptism. It's a present ongoing reality through our cooperation with grace. And we shall be saved if the two biggest words in the English language, I always say the three biggest words or, or letters in the Greek language, aeon, which is if. If we endure until the end. Are you all with me? What about 1 John 5, 13? Well, Tim, if that's true, if your salvation, in, in a sense, in some sense, is future and contingent, because Jesus said, you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake, but he that endures to the end shall be saved. It's contingent upon you doing something, right? Can I give you one more? Just one more. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Jesus says, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, right? Well, if it's contingent upon something you do, how could John say, These things I've written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life? Are you with me? This throws a wrench into your whole Catholic deal here. Because you're saying, I can't know, but John doesn't agree with you. Here's the answer, folks. And in my book on Mary, in the chapter on salvation, I go through this. I, in fact, one of the, the blessings about writing the book on Mary is I ended up, for those of you who have read it, I know the Holy Deacon has read it, you know, I end up going through you know, just about every doctrine you can imagine because Mary is connected to everything. You know, I have a whole chapter on salvation because if you don't understand salvation, you can't understand Mary's role in God's plan of salvation, right? In that chapter, I, I, I go through this. I was at a conference in Dallas, Texas, and Steve Ray was at a table right next to me. Father Packwell was there, and a fellow came up to me who I have since debated numerous times. His name's Mike Gindren. Good guy. He's a former Catholic who's now a Protestant apologist, and oh, he's going to make a great Catholic when he comes back, I'm telling you. <laughs> but Mike and I have, have gone around a few times, formally as well as informally, and I had never seen him back. Now, this is years ago. I hadn't seen him before. I'd read him, but I hadn't seen him. So he came up to my table, and he hit me with that verse. And so I'm responding, and I kind of noticed Steve Ray was kind of doing this. <laughs> he started listening in on the conversation as we were going back and forth. And then Mike walked away, and Steve ran over to my table. And he said, Tim, do you know who that was? That was Mike Gendron. I go, you're kidding me. So I chased him down, and that led to our first of several debates. But he used that verse, and I hit him with these, and I'll never forget his response. Mike Gendron had no response. What he said to me was, well, let me tell you something, Tim. I never heard that when I was a Catholic, 35 years ago when I was a Catholic. Maybe if people would have talked like you're talking now, I would not have left the Catholic Church 35 years ago. And I said, well, brother, number one, they've been here all along. You had wax in your ears, <laughs> namely popes saints, doctors, and such. But I said, brother, we're waiting for you right now. Come on back. But here, here was the point. When John, this is what I said to Mike, and I'll leave you with this. When Mike said, these things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. I said, brother, we Catholics believe you can know you have eternal life. 
as long as you understand knowledge, a day say, as John was writing it in 1 John 5.13. And he was intrigued. Hmm, what do you mean? See, because knowledge in Greek, in fact, in my book, I cross-reference Acts chapter 20, verse 25, when Paul's with the Ephesian elders, and he says, I know that I will never see you again. Well, most scholars believe he did see them again. He's using the term knowledge, not in the sense that I know 2 plus 2 equals 4. And we do this in English. I, I use the example in, in my book. I know I'm going to get an A on my Greek exam tomorrow. Have you ever been with it? When I was in the seminary, I used to lead study groups. I, I used to tutor some of the seminarians in, in Greek. And... We would study, study for hours. We're up late at night before the exam the next day. And at the end of that study, often we would say, man, I, I got it locked in. I know I'm going to ace that thing. But how many of y'all know, sometimes on test day, everything falls out of your ears? <laughs> I knew it last night. See my point? The term knowledge does not necessarily mean a metaphysical certainty. It can mean a confident assurance. And that's how Paul uses it in Acts 20, verse 25. And that's how John is using it in 1 John 5, 13. And you know how you can know that? See, that was a little play on words there. You can know. Anyway, some of you will get that on the way home. It's by reading the next verse. This time, all you got to do is read the next verse. He says, and this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, we have the petitions that we have asked of him. How many of you here have absolute metaphysical certainty that when you ask God for something, you're going to get it? If you raise your hand, you're a liar, and Father will hear your confession, all right? <laughs> because you don't. I'll guarantee you this. Quite a few of you ladies right here, and don't raise your hand, if you got everything God, you ask God for, you wouldn't be with your husband right now. Am I right? <laughs> now, don't raise your hand. <laughs> I don't want to start a fight here. Uh, holy deacon. Are you all with me? See, it's a confident assurance analogous to the confident assurance we have when we ask God for something. We're going to receive it, but we know he will, he will give it to us in accordance with his infinite and mercy and justice and wisdom, etc. My friends, so yes, we can know, have a confident assurance, but not an absolute assurance. Why? Because the Bible plainly says you can lose your salvation. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.